please be advised that this episode of Tech Point Zero contains content of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to Tech Point Zero, your popular technology show with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode 3, released in June 2019. My name is Ben, and as ever, I'm joined by Chris. In this episode, we'll be talking with Kat about her experience of moving from a large company to a small one. After that, Kat sticks around to discuss the impact of the UK's Digital Economy Act of 2017. Let's get to it. So, today we have Kat with us to talk about a recent career change. Kat, would you like to introduce yourself more fully? Hello, I'm Kat, and I'm a general developer botherer who has come around to talk about the differences between moving from a a very large company that I've been at for a very long time to a very small company, which is very new to me in lots of different ways. Cool. So can we have a rough idea of the different sizes of the company you've moved between? I started off at the first company when it was 200 people, maybe. And by the time I left, the bit that I worked for, which is kind of a local arm, was maybe probably 1500 people as part of a multinational and the company that I've moved to is 40 people and it all fits in one room. Yeah, that would be quite a uh, culture shock. So from a culture point of view, obviously you're sitting in a room before with lots of people around you, presumably lots of different offices in the same building. Um, and now you're all in one room. How, how does that feel? Yeah, I mean, it's good in a lot of ways because I, I remember that from sort of previous times. If you want to talk to someone, you literally just get up and talk to them or ideally don't get up and talk to them just use instant messaging obviously everyone being in the same room does mean it tends to get a bit noisier because people do the the getting up and talking and you can't really escape it so how have you found the cultural differences between the different offices vary there there have been big differences because when i joined the first company the sort of tech culture was very different it was you know absolutely very macho very bro culture there were very very few women and not really any awareness that perhaps it would be nice to have more women how long ago was it that you started at company a uh i started at company a probably about 13 years ago just to give some sort of time frame as well to that yeah i'd worked for a very very small company shortly before that uh, which was a tech company as well and that was like maybe 10 people so it's been quite a change but anyway yeah company a about 13 years ago, and it was very, very laddy. So with Company B, it was started so much later that it's perhaps helpfully and healthily inherited a lot of the progress. So it's it's coming from a more healthy place with regard to diversity. How does that kind of affect the, the team internally? Like, if, do you see the benefits of that day to day? Yeah, yeah, I think you definitely do. So we have, we discuss about uh, one of the things we're talking about at the minute is running user groups and whether what the alcohol policy should be. Mm. Normally, or certainly, I'm very used to user groups happening in a pub and then everyone gets horribly drunk and you know a great time is had by all. Mm. But obviously, that's mm. not that welcoming. Uh, I mean, day to day, I feel that I'm paid attention to far more that my opinion is respected. Mm. It's very difficult to to really judge the difference because of course a long time ago attitudes to women were very different and I was very different and in many ways I think having gone through that sort of atmosphere I'm much more confident and much more able to say what I want and be heard and 
have people pay attention to me, you know, in a, in a respectful way, obviously I'm not stumping my feet, but you know, I'm an I'm experienced engineer now. I think any experienced engineer would likely get more attention and more respect just because of their position and their expectations that they clearly bring with them. Mm. Mm. So it's very difficult to compare. Yeah, you can't pull it apart from a, a single point really, but it certainly sounds like a friendly environment. I'd rather be <laughs> the, the newer environment. Yeah, Company B is definitely a much, much friendlier environment. Would, would you say that it was, um, that it perhaps felt less uh, corporate? If that's maybe, or, or would that not really kind of be the right way to describe the difference at all? Yeah, that that is not the difference, definitely. I mean, if I had to describe it as anything, I would say that Company B seems a lot more mature. Mm. Uh, and I don't mean in, obviously, in terms of the length of time I've been there or the age of the company, but the way it's set up, the way people approach things just seems more sensible. It seems more organized. So does that maturity then trickle down to sort of technology decisions and the, the sort of less social side of the company? Yeah, the, the technical decisions are always under some dispute because everyone has an idea or maybe several ideas. But yeah, I think they are more sensible. And one of the great benefits of being in a more modern company is that you can use um, sort of things like AWS. And if you mm. want to use Go, for instance, or you want to use, oh, I don't know, like uh, new, new frameworks or, you know, all of that is much, much easier at the minute. Where, whereas if you're at a bigger and far more established company, I think you get very tied into uh, your, to your sort of enterprise choices particularly mm. if you're not in the cloud and you just have all of that stability. That's perhaps the wrong way to put it. Uh, you have, you know, kind of the legacy physical servers. They're, they are very stable, but they're also like kind of in the way sometimes. Yeah. Not just that, but you've got the that kind of preconception that everybody here knows Python. So why would we move to Go? Because that's going to be an uphill struggle for us all. We all know Python. Let's stick with Python. But actually, there could be really some cool things about Go that you might want to use. Yeah. I mean, there, there are things to be said for technical choices that include everyone not that i'm making any comments about go because i'm not really very familiar with it but i think yeah if we're going to talk about maybe uh smaller companies and flexibility of technical choices that can lead to everyone having a pet framework or a favorite choices of of language and that then can become an absolute maintainability nightmare so can you see some of that happening now in the in the current or in the new organization company b can you sort of see some of those tech choices being made today that are going to lead to that legacy in the future yeah to a certain extent i really can i think when you join a company and there are some odd choices that have been made and you might sort of wonder quite what was going on really uh but you know they happened before you got there and that's how they are i've definitely had some experiences of seeing those choices happening again and sort of working back in my head and going oh that's why that happened. But this, of course, then makes me feel like kind of the, the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, don't do this. You'll regret it. Are those sort of situations always just sort of technical ones? Or are there organisational issues that they're making decisions about now that are going to have a negative impact in 10, 20 years time? I think they can be, yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned uh, instant messaging earlier. Hmm. You need some level of organizational split because you don't necessarily want to have, say, the the production chat available to everyone in the, the company. Hmm. However, you know, pick one thing and stick with it 
and make your divisions within that thing. Because if you end up sort of with some people are on Google chat or some people are using discuss to talk to people or some people are using Slack, you need to fix those choices, you know, because Mm. they will just become ingrained. And as the company gets bigger and bigger, then people get far more political about their choices and it becomes harder and harder to move to anything that's more sensible. Yeah, they're sort of easier to move when you're small and nimble and agile. Yeah. On on that note, because I'm quite new to using Slack, why does everyone use Slack? It is god awful. I agree with you there, 100%. I, I kind of think of Slack as like a crappy version of Google Wave. I mean, I just, I never use Google Wave, but like IRC solved all of these problems yep. before any of us were born. I Okay, playing devil's advocate a little bit here. I, IRC. You can't send cat gifts, Chris. I know. <laughs> yeah, you have, but you can. It's true. Yes, you can. I've, um... I've got a cloud-based IRC client and I'm cat gifts all the way. <laughs> but, okay, so actually that, that particular service, I think I know what you're talking about, is particularly good. But most people aren't. There's a, there's a sort of technical limitation to getting set up on IRC. I really don't think there is. I genuinely don't think there is. I mean, obviously, since Slack disabled their IRC bridge, which was great, thanks, then I think that's become maybe a bit harder. But... Really, all, all IRC is is a protocol, and you can plug that protocol into any number of clients. I still think there are a number of clients that you can use. And even if you say IRC isn't the thing, and, and maybe it isn't for everybody, hmm. we still had, at least 10 years ago, if not longer ago, uh, the likes of uh, XMPP come along and solve this whole problem. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just Slack seems to have come yeah. along and solved the same thing again. It hasn't even solved it. No, no, it hasn't. Just made you take up, you know, four gig of RAM to, to chat to people. I tried to add someone to a chat and it just started an entirely new chat without the chat history. I don't, I don't I don't think Slack's great. The threads are the, probably the worst feature. Yeah, like really. Why? Why? Why can they? Why? The threads seem to be really good at removing people that need to see the discussion from the discussion, but not tidying up the noise. It seems to be the inversion of what they were designed to achieve. I see. I understand how, like, how someone might have thought that was a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I could see other models like working well where you like create like temporary chat rooms off of the first one or there's, there's, there's other things that i think would have worked well to to solve that problem and then the threads themselves don't support half the features i can't remember what, what it is like you can't post images in there and a bunch of other stuff and they just seem uh, not great for having that kind of multiple person conversation about lots of different issues that are coming up but google wave was so good for the threads existed but you could thread the threads and the threads and threads as many times as you wanted so I suppose first, I'd like to understand why did you stay at Company A for such a long period of time? So I was at Company A. I, it was one of my first jobs. I mean, it w- wasn't by any means my first, but it was one of my first real jobs where I was learning things, involved in quite quite a dynamic environment. And, you know, it was fun. I enjoyed doing it. It was building good products with nice people. And, you know, we, we had some great times and that that atmosphere lasted for quite a long time. Mm. And unfortunately, a, a series of regrettable decisions led to uh, some management choices, which meant that the atmosphere changed quite a lot because a lot of people left. And that definitely changed the the whole atmosphere and the, the feeling of working there. Mm. And then, you know, I mean, why does anyone stay at any job, really, I suppose? But the memory of a good thing, I think, just kept on. Yeah, I, I should add a kind of the way I phrased that question made me 
I don't I don't want to shame anyone for staying at a job for a long time. If you're happy in your job and it's you know fulfilling for you, that's great. That's a, a brilliant decision. I think one that people these days don't consider often enough. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've written some notes about why I stayed and they're all really depressing. <laughs> I mean, it was in the city centre. I had a, a good friendship group there. It was convenient. It was, you know, I had responsibilities and I liked doing it. I, I suppose a lot of the difference was, in part, I think I was unlucky because I went from one field of developer bothering to a different one. So I moved from a testing role into um, an operational role. Unfortunately, at the same time as uh, there was a mass outbreak of testosterone poisoning. Ah. And so a team that I had previously enjoyed working with and had really kind of, I think they, they were very much kind of old guard members of the company. So were much more interested in open source, more interested in technical ideas and investigating new things. They became much less involved in the job that I was doing. And I found myself working with some lads who were very excited about having all of the power and all of the, the passwords and be able to stomp about. Uh, hands up, I, you know, I definitely enjoyed my fair share of stomping about, but it wasn't a good atmosphere. It wasn't a nice place to work by that stage. And, you know, un undeniably, the working atmosphere there is why I left. I've actually moved out of operations because I just couldn't stay working with those people. It was horrible. But I've found quite a different job now. So I suppose if we move back into the into talking about company B, one of the great benefits of working for a much smaller company is that there does seem to be quite a lot of freedom to not like make my own role by any means, but there is more freedom to say, I would like to work in this way. And as long as I'm still accomplishing all of these aims, does anyone have a problem with that? And generally... It's fine. It's been fine so far. So obviously you decided that you wanted to leave company A. Did you go, I want to work for a smaller company? Or was that sort of a conscious decision or was it something that just sort of happened? I mean, it was very much something that just just happened. So, I mean, because I'd been at company A for so long and in this horrible work environment, it really, really ground me down and really ground my confidence down, mm. which obviously was quite a vicious circle because I found that, you know, it did affect my work and I could look at my work objectively and say, this is not good. I know that I am working badly, which is obviously horrible. And so, yeah, I started the whole process of applying for some jobs and that was as frustrating as it normally is. To be honest, I think by the stage that I ended up finally getting this job i was really just like anything i don't care just get me out of here <laughs> did you find that you had to make any adjustments yourself after being in a particular organization for such a long period of time and then move into a very different one um yeah i mean it's funny that you should say that i was very conscious of not wanting bad habits and bad vibes almost to to follow me over into a new company so i you know to a certain extent i thought you know this is a new chance Obviously, this is Sheffield and everyone knows everyone. So there, there are, you know, it wasn't a completely new chance because you could get fired on one side of the city at 10 a.m. And the entire rest of the city knows about it by five past due to the joys of social media. So, you know, everyone knows everyone. But I thought, you know, I can work with people that I haven't worked with before. I can present a different face of myself, which was good. Mm. however all of these people are really really nice uh, which i'm not used to obviously um and so i'm having to put a lot more effort into 
really trying to be nice and to like consciously try, you know, try and be very helpful, not rely on assumptions and you know, may, maybe I'm not that into Avengers, but I'm I'm happy to go in to sit in the break room and talk about Avengers if, you know, because that's just more pleasant than hanging out on my own. Yeah. And that's that is very tiring. Definitely. I suppose that's part of uh, maybe joining any new company, not necessarily a small one, is that you've got to forge those relationships again and, and, and sort of find out where you fit. Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the things about the small company very much is if you you're all, you are still all in the same room together mm. and you know everyone can hear everything everyone is saying so if you don't get on with someone it's going to be obvious yes and so you just need to be professional about it really yeah there's always going to be uh challenging workplace relationships yeah i mean i haven't made any of those yet fortunately but yes they they do they do happen yeah and as long as everyone acts professionally i generally found that they're, they're capable i think they are really yeah how long have you been at the new company for roughly well about a month okay right chris said that you were quite new there but the way you're talking about it i'm like are you quite new as in like a month or quite new as in like four or five months there's uh, there's sort of some familiarity already coming across even though it's just been a month which is kind of interesting well actually that makes me think of another thing which i think could have worked against me and like maybe has i will never know because i had been at company a for so long and everyone knew me mm. i've just fallen into this habit of familiarity with everyone and i think there's been there has been a bit of a culture shock for company b because <laughs> i've sort of turned up and just gone you know yeah i'm used to just getting on with people and doing things and making terrible jokes in the <laughs> general slack channel and that sort of thing <laughs> the last company i was at was itil and the company that oh, i'm currently right. oh, with God, yeah. is agile was that a factor for you and if so how was that no i think i would i wouldn't have wanted to work for an itil company but that i think is because i wouldn't have wanted to work for a company big enough to to use itil sure you know, I'm like, I've drank a fair amount of Agile Kool-Aid in my time, but I'm not necessarily setting out to work in an Agile way. I think maybe that has been the biggest shock to the system, actually. It is very Agile. There is no time to, like, have a meeting about having a meeting and then answer a question three <laughs> days later, and, you know. The current organisation I work for is, okay, it's still no more than, like, 15 people, but we're starting to get to a size where you are all in the same room, but you can't just, like, shout across the room. It's a lot more difficult to keep track of everything that's going on at the company. When I first started there, you could just about manage it. And that that's already starting to lead to a situation where it's like, I feel bad not being able to respond immediately to someone. Like, because, oh, I need to speak to somebody else to get you the answer that you need. But they're currently in a meeting and then they're on holiday tomorrow. It's, I'm finding it very foreign. I've been in that situation. And I think that if you can learn to let go of your feelings of guilt about that, you, you will have a much easier life. Ultimately, it's not actually your decision how the company is run. So if the company is happy with that. Yeah. And some of it, I don't think there's a solution to. It's just like, it's part of having a large organisation of humans working together. Can't always get away from it. Now we'd like to talk about a legal change that's happening very shortly in the United Kingdom. The 2017 Digital Economy Act made it the law that all pornographic websites needed to verify their user's age via means other than just the user entering their age. This essentially means that anybody consuming porn in the UK will have to identify who they are 
because there's no real way of confirming anyone's age without that. This means that from the 15th of July this year, if you want to consume any pornography on the internet and you live in the UK, you'll probably get an age ID pop-up, which is developed by MindGeek. They're the company behind most of the internet porn sites, most of the free porn on the internet. And they claim that the system isn't going to link to users' identities on the sites, but we don't really get to see inside the system. And they're selling this system to other customers as well. It's not just for their own internal use. Ben and Kat, what are your thoughts on uh, this particular situation? Where do you begin? I mean, it's to pick up on that question of the idea that identities will not be linked with the best will in the world. I think if you squinted, you might perhaps say maybe the person that released that statement doesn't really know that much about anonymizing data. Mm. It is perhaps a bit more reali- realistic to say that maybe MindGeek aren't being really as honest as they could be. As I'm sure the listeners of the podcast know, it is extremely hard to create properly anonymized data. Mm. So in many ways, the claim that it will be anonymized is just, it's just nonsense because it can't really be. Yeah, if you've got to take someone's identity to prove they are who they say they are, and then they've got to log into the site, there needs to be some link, even if it's pseudo-anonymized, there needs to be some link to that account. Yeah, and you know, while we have the situation that we currently have, which is things are becoming rather less pleasant for women and minorities, hmm. it is ridiculous to try and think of a situation where there won't be an incentive for this data to be leaked in, in a, a, a sort of theoretical situation if we end up with a particularly far-right government. I hope that we don't, but if we do, it is very, very easy to see that perhaps actually this data will suddenly become available to the Ministry of Justice, for instance, mm. and then then that will be connected to various other sort of pieces of civic-related information. And so suddenly the government has all of this information about you and essentially a method of blackmailing you which under a far-right government, I can well imagine it would be very easy to spin up some kind of hate campaign. And, you know, that's one of many scenarios. It is quite far-fetched. But when you are handing this level of control over to people and companies on the internet, I think you do need to understand that some things kind of are forever. It's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, I think the I'm going to say databases because with all of the independent companies out there that will be using these systems, there's going to be multiple targets for attacks. There's going to be sort of lots and lots of databases. And then how much of your actual real life ID they store and how much can be linked back to you might not be necessarily clear, but there will ultimately be some sort of ID that will link all of your browsing history around that area of the web. Yeah, I mean, Chris just put it significantly better and and more concisely and more realistically than I did. So what Chris said. And that's the interesting thing as well. I mean, Chris sort of mentioned databases. And if you look at it from both sides, even if there is one database held by an entity, that's a really easy single source of attack for all of the data. Then again, if you, and I suspect that Chris is right, where it will be multiple, the standards of which each of those databases are secured and the data that is held within them will vary mm. it, it gives you a much larger surface of attack to get a bit of the data yeah which could be just as devastating so something i'd also like to touch on is i suppose how effective we think this is going to be <laughs> I, I think at the minimum the government has suggested they want to stop children stumbling upon porn now i generally think it probably will do that 
they're not necessarily like it depends what age you're really looking at but at a certain age they're going to come across the message and go yeah sure whatever close the tab and, and move on but if there's any degree of determination it's pretty easy to get through these checks the one thing i would possibly disagree with you just there or rather caution that i don't know that maybe we're qualified if you like to Mm. to state that particular claim is that sure when we were teenagers that would be the case if these kind of blockers if you like were in place that may have may have stopped us from stumbling on it but crucially this law does not apply to the likes of twitter facebook instagram snapchat and one thing that i'm cautious of is that our teenagers and young people today living the internet through those kind of interfaces rather than whole websites dedicated to porn or whatever that actually they could still stumble upon it even easier than we may have done when we were teenagers i'm glad that you brought that up because i was going to mention it definitely i mean there there are a lot of different accounts on social media where there are uh, historical nudes for instance like the the whores of your twitter account hmm. <laughs> there's a great deal of academic value in having those accounts but they still basically have porn on them in the sense that they have naked humans. Mm. Which, of course, like society has an assumption that, that that therefore must be porn. Well, that's a very good point as well. So yes, I think there is... It just makes the whole idea of the law just seem more daft. It's a very yeah. interesting point about whether young people are going to social media or whether they're actually going to dedicated sites. I genuinely have no idea. It, it makes you wonder if the intention is to provide other incentives for those sites to stop allowing that sort of content. Uh, was it? I think it was Tumblr recently. Was it Tumblr? A bunch of one of one of the big social media sites banned adult content of any sort. Yeah, yeah, it was Tumblr. Yeah, if that sort of trend continues over time, I mean, Twitter still allows it. But if that trend continues, looks like potentially Reddit is making a move to slowly phase that sort of content out. Sure. And if that does but, happen, I, like I'm not actually advocating for that. I I don't think that's a no, good no, no. thing. But but they these are companies that are doing it by convention because society says or it thinks society is saying that they don't want it. Mm. The law which we're discussing still does not stop the three of us from creating a social media site no. that wouldn't be privy to these laws and distributing content like that. I also think these sites are doing it because of the risk. They're just they're looking at these laws and they're looking at society's attitudes and they're deciding that the risk is greater than the rewards they're just Mm -hmm. making a very simple financial calculation in some scenarios i I don't think that's that's really very good like i suppose the two particular situations more from from a sort of non-freedom point of view i'd like to talk about the sort of educational value that comes with pornography and the number of people i've spoken to that have understood their own sexuality through an explanation of that and i think that's something that's not really been a part of this discussion mm-hmm. and that maybe if if we manage to get rid of it completely like if we're like okay there's no more porn on the internet that re- removes that ability people can't do that anymore i mean i don't necessarily think it's the uh the mainstream porn which i i feel it should i feel we should admit is a very unrealistic depiction of sex mm-hmm. and is often quite misogynistic i'm not trying to defend that but equally so there have been plenty of people who have discovered that they're gay by using porn, plenty of people who have understood that it's okay to feel how they feel about gender, sexuality. You know, that, that wide spectrum of knowledge is available online, and it's very easy for that to be decided as porn and sliced off the internet along with this. Yeah, there's definitely a, a wider social aspect of this. There are social media sites like FetLife, 
is a you know a sort of mm. they call themselves kinky facebook it contains adult images although they've had their own wars with the images that they think are acceptable or various other people think are acceptable would that be covered by this law how would that be legislated against and i do absolutely agree with you chris losing that and it's related types of things and the sorts of things you mention it would have a massive social cost mm. this whole kind of educational side of pornography uh, and we, we didn't fully uh, discuss the ways of which this might be effective but i think we can all perhaps agree that it's not going to necessarily be that effective no. it, it does seem to suggest that all of this has been put together by a bunch of people that maybe well certainly haven't looked at all the consequences mm. looked at how it can be enforced properly for instance let's just say that we take the educational point that that chris just brought up okay so we take this this avenue away for people to learn what is then happening in mainstream education to then plug that hole nothing because mainstream education perhaps maybe even shouldn't be covering this to go back to the fet life question i would not expect to see mainstream education covering the idea that people have sexual fetishes i think that's probably not something to be covered except you know you could say Sometimes people have sexual fetishes, but I wouldn't expect mm. mainstream mm. education to go into the details of what that might entail, not least because I don't think sure. anyone's got the time. So it's sites that do cater to all sorts of ideas, allow people mm. to discover things just in a way that you can't really do anywhere else. So that hole uh, is not being plugged, that there isn't a lot of the cultural freedoms and the confidence people have built around saying actually it is okay mm. to like whatever it is that they like mm. that's not really ever been a thing in society before and if the internet with its freedoms and its tolerance does go away in that sense there is there just isn't a space in society for it yeah i, I do think for all the problems the internet has caused because it's enabled people to see a much wider variety of life it has at least accelerated sort of sex positive culture in a way that we wouldn't have wouldn't have happened without the internet. Maybe it was slowly happening anyway, but it definitely went a lot faster because of the internet. I think it's made a lot of people a lot happier. So the, the other thing I'd like to talk about as well is independent creators. So mm -hmm. there are plenty of independent creators of adult material on the internet. And sometimes it's a hobby, sometimes it's a side business, sometimes it's a full-time job. And those creators are in a really difficult spot now because more than a third of their site, however you define a third, is considered porn, or probably is considered porn. Where, where does that line get drawn? If you're just creating audio material, does that count as porn? I think that might have already been legislated against have previously. Have they talked about that? I, well, yeah, because I think back when this was first suggested a few years back, I think we, we went through a few rounds of, but does it cover cartoons? But does it cover this? But does it cover that? <laughs> okay. But then those... those Independent providers now have to look at providing some sort of age ID system, understanding the law. And for someone who's maybe doing it as a smaller part of their, their income, that's not very practical. It's similar in some respects then to the whole corner shop and big supermarket. That mm. the, the, the small corner shop is doing something that they can probably barely afford to kind of do, but it, you know, 
pays the bills and whatnot and and they won't be able to put into place if the government suddenly brought in and said oh you know all baked beans must be sold in a particular size tin or something yeah a big supermarket can very quickly turn around and go yeah that's fine whereas a small corner shop possibly could i think and- i think the analogy from that you're getting out there is probably best described with the credit and debit card companies in that the big supermarkets can negotiate really good deals with them and the smaller Absolutely. shops can't but in this yes. situation not only is it the same as that essentially the credit card company the mind geek the company making the age id system that looks like it's going to get the widest adoption is your competitor yeah, they yeah. are the supermarkets essentially so they're not just getting it cheap they're getting it for free yeah exactly and and they're setting the price to their competitors it's not a healthy situation is it i mean like forget no. about the fact that it is about an adult industry if we were talking about you know the supply of celery it would be absolute gross market fixing yeah definitely on top of that MindGeek have released a vpn which brings us on oh, to how that. extremely convenient <laughs> <laughs> so you can get around this via vpn and the government have said that that's i don't think they've come out and said that's part of the plan but they've definitely said that vpns won't be banned so i think they're aware that vpns exist you know that if it happens it happens sort of thing you can't ban vpns i think without a massive massive change in contemporary culture china's uh, trying hard <laughs> yeah but like the government used vpns constantly to do yes. their work yeah completely Absolutely. Yeah. so there's going to be a number of people who will opt out of using the age id system and, and competing systems and would swap to using a vpn instead mm-hmm my other concern with that is that it will push a lot of under 18 year olds who are that determined group that want to access this sort of material to free vpns with the security risks that tends to entail where they inject adverts bitcoin miners what whatever into the user session or worse harvest their data intentionally to resell it it's basically shifting the problem from here's a database that the government are more than Mm. likely going to be able to get a hold of because they've sanctioned the use of it Mm. to here's a database that possibly anybody in the world can just pay for because you know yeah if a vpn is offering it for free and selling the data they don't care where the money's coming from yeah and and for a vulnerable user base like a, a group of people who are exploring their their sexuality and their place in the world and yes yeah may, may look at things that they're embarrassed about at that time and uh, easy to blackmail easy to target really the amusing thing about that um probably not amusing or <laughs> wrong word is that, that they themselves probably won't be holding the internet accounts that that will be attached to the ips that, that these vpns are logging on so it'll be their parents that uh... yes <laughs> well i mean like you know yes and no i think mm. connecting ips to specific internet accounts isn't always as reliable as we might think it is no i mean like you make a very solid point i'm just saying it doesn't was... always work like that also there's going to be a lot more traffic like i suspect that they won't then perhaps turn vpns off to access facebook or other social medias which will be help to help to tie down or just they make they make you sign into the vpn so it's tied to an email address sure i doubt most 16 year old boys is uh, opsec (laughs) is the the best around and i'm sure some might be but the vast majority are gonna be quite identifiable in their data and browsing history yes on the other hand maybe we'll all just have a beautiful uh utopian world where everyone's cool with everything That seems likely, right? I can't wait for that world to exist. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode.